6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 54 through 59. Anyway, verse 4. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander to the peoples. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew thee not shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God, and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. And indeed, the whole world will acknowledge the Lord, but also Israel will have that unique relationship with him. And that's what he's highlighting here. Interesting. It mentions the sure mercies of David. The word really implies promises of David. And the primary one is that the Messiah would come from his seed and that he would sit on David's throne and it would be an everlasting kingdom. See, there's some very unique promises. When you say the mercies of David or the promises of David, you and I cling, of course, to many promises of, the, of Jesus Christ as the Messiah or our Redeemer, our Savior. But what's illuminated here or focused on here are the unique relationships to Israel. You see, the promises to David are that the Messiah would be from his seed, eligible for his throne, and set up a kingdom forever. Not some kind of fuzzy, never-never land thing, but a literal kingdom on the literal throne of David. And how, how we have a tough time really appreciating that. Verse 6, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Wait a minute, friends. That implies something rather serious. That implies he's not always findable. If you hear his voice, if he's calling you, if he's touching your life, you need to respond because he won't always do that. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Circumstances can change that. Your attitude can change that. Your lack of openness to him can change that. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Again, Isaiah does this so often. Are those in juxtaposition, or are those two people? You can argue both ways linguistically. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It's a typical Hebrew structure to put two things in the same thing, say it twice. Or, <laughs> maybe we've got two persons of the Trinity here. I'll let you take your pick. We'll move on. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. How glibly we say that, and yet how <laughs> slow we are to really appreciate that. God doesn't do it the way we want it done, right? You notice that? <laughs> my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not there, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth uh, and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Boy, that's, these verses are rich. If you're a scripture memory type or take notes, you might annotate some of these. They are from verse 6 on especially. Boy, what a passage. It's interesting, verse 10, he speaks of the sower. It, it may give seed to the sower. Does that echo the idioms in Matthew 13? Remember the sower and the seed and the four soils, followed by the sower and the tares and the wheat of the seven kingdom parables that Jesus gives his disciples in Matthew 13. It's interesting to notice that the author of these 66 books penned by 40 penmen uses the same idioms, whether you're talking about Isaiah or Matthew 13 or Revelation 2 and 3 or whatever. It's interesting. That's a, the theologians, you know, if you're trying to justify, if you spend a lot of time in college, you've got to give these things big fancy names. They call this the principle of expositional constancy. All it really means is that the idioms that God uses, whether he's speaking through Moses in Genesis or Isaiah here or uh, Jesus in Matthew 13, the idioms, the alphabet he's drawing from is in common. It's just one of these subtle testimonies. The more you read the Bible, the more you accept it at face value, the more you'll discover justification that it is, in fact, to be taken at face value. God says what he means and means what he says. And that these 66 books written by 40 authors is a singular Message system engineered, every number, every detail, every syllable there by design, by supernatural engineering. So shall my word that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void. Boy, that's an interesting commitment. You're witnessing. You're in some situation with strangers, whatever, and what pops into your mind is some scripture. Don't be shy. Throw it out there. They laugh at it. They disparage it. They go on with the things. Not to worry. It's not your problem. It's God's. My word will not return unto me void. He's not talking about handing him some cute tract or delivering some eloquent little repartee that you've worked up. No. Give him the word of God. It'll work. Your artifice won't. His word will not return void. It may take 10 years for that remark you made, that scripture you tossed in that situation, to echo back in the person's mind and cause him to be confronted with the living God. It may not be in the next 10 seconds, maybe 10 years later. God's commitment is that his word will not return void. Who's going to express his word? Some angel calling out of the clouds? Maybe occasionally, but it's not too, not too often, I don't think, that I know it is. Who's going to express his word in the situation to, to the world, to the men, to the situation you run into? You are. You are. You have an opportunity to participate. If you don't, will God be stymied in what he's trying to do? I don't think so. I think he'll find a way around your ineptitude. He just gives you an opportunity to participate. Grab it. You can have a cosmic impact. And boy, it's exciting to discover occasions when that, that really, you know, you really have, have that. Anyway. So shall my word that goeth forth out of my mouth, and it shall not return unto me void, for it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. If God gives you a verse, by the way, he can't do that unless you've done some preparation. Remember when Philip was joined to the Ethiopian treasurer's chariot, his caravan, coming back from Jerusalem. 
Ethiopian was puzzled about, he was reading Isaiah 53, he didn't understand it. How can I understand unless someone show me? Philip got up there and explained Isaiah 53. Why could he? He'd done his homework. He understood Isaiah 53, and he understood how it related to Jesus Christ. So he shared that and changed the course of Ethiopia, among other things. He did that because he did his homework. Have you done your homework? Do you know your Bible? Do you understand Isaiah 53? Have you memorized a few key verses on key things so that you can respond? Unless you do, how is he going to use you? How's he going to give you an opportunity to participate in his grand adventure? Because he's going to get it done. But you have an opportunity to participate. Shall accomplish that which I please, it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. And the mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. That sounds familiar. Echo Psalm 48.8 and other places. Instead of the thorns, that's the incident of those are the acacia bushes, shall come up the fir tree. The word thorns, the acacia bush, that's an interesting thing. The acacia wood is the interesting wood because it's the wood of the burning bush in uh, Exodus 4. It's also the wood that was the shittim wood that was covered with gold in the tabernacle. If you want to do a little side study, study the, how God uses that. But instead of that, shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall go to the Lord for a name and an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. At this point, Isaiah shifts gears. We've had this sort of wild tour of thought, and now he gets down to some real practical implications of all of this. Chapter 56, Thus saith the Lord, Keep justice, do righteousness, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the foreigner that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. You may not be following all this because you may not know the Levitical laws, but see, if you were a eunuch, you were cut off from the congregation of Israel by the law. That was a penalty of being a eunuch. There's two points here. Number one is what Isaiah is highlighting here is the Lord saying through Isaiah that he's announcing grace. See, by the law, they would be a dry tree. They would be cut off. But he says, Thus saith the Lord God unto the eunuchs that keep the Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of the sons and of daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now you may be wondering, gee, that's interesting, but why is Isaiah focusing on this particular thing? How widespread can that issue be? Remember that Hezekiah, who was the king under Isaiah, it had been prophesied that his son, in 2 Kings 20, that his sons would serve as eunuchs in the court of Babylon. And his sons may have included Daniel. Daniel has three friends in Daniel chapter 1 that are taken to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, reported to the, uh, king, the head of the eunuchs. It uh, may have been of the royal line. And indeed, if that's true, that certainly would fulfill what it says here, because indeed he gave them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And I would imagine Daniel... <laughs> Well established it. All this business of cut off is in Deuteronomy 23 for those of you who want to chase into all that stuff. But what's highlighted here is grace. God is uh, able to go beyond 
the requirements of the law. Also, the sons of the foreigner join themselves, Lord, to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. There's Isaiah again, all peoples, not just Jews. My house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. And that reason that sounds familiar to you is because Jesus quotes that in Mark 11, verse 17. Remember when he cleansed the temple, you've made my house, you made a den of thieves. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Where is he quoting? From Isaiah 56. The Lord God who gathereth the outcasts of Israel saith, Yet will I gather others to him beside those that are gathered unto him. Ooh, that's interesting. Jesus says, I have flocks that you know not of. Huh? All ye beasts of the field come to devour, yea, all the beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind, they are all ignorant, they are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yea, they are greedy dogs that can never have enough, and they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his gain, from his quarter. Come, they say, I will fetch wine, and we will fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will shall be as this day, and much more abundant. Now, obviously, Isaiah is talking about the situation there in Israel. But as you read this, we can't help but stand back and say, wait a minute. Does that fit today or not? Everyone should look to their own way, everyone for his own gain from his quarter. You know, it fascinates me as a businessman to look back at the last, say, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years in business in this country. One of the highest ethics in business, in this country, it was Wall Street. My word is my bond. It, the, 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 the integrity of the street created the capital base that allowed this country to prosper in the Industrial Revolution and onwards. It was, if you were, if you were interested in that sort of thing, the highest standards were set by the grand houses of the street. You know, all the grand major firms, the old traditions. It fascinates me to watch the deterioration in just the last few years where those proud institutions are now synonymous with sleaze. How those proud institutions are now transaction-oriented. They no longer think of long-term relationships with clients. They may talk that way, but it's baloney. They read, what have you done for me lately? What kind of transaction can I con you into that will give me the, the, the fat fees that have been characteristic of that trade? See, they all look to their own way, everyone for his gain from his quarter. Come, they say, I will fetch wine, and we will fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow shall be as this day, and much more abundant. And even today, with all the problems in this country, people are saying, well, it's a recession, it's a cycle, it's going to be a little tough to get through, but it'll turn. Oh, really? I've made 30 years studying the business world. doesn't mean I'm right. But I look at this, and I don't see a recession at all. I see something far more serious. When General Motors lays off 74,000 permanent layoffs, not temporary layoffs because of a correction of inventory. No, no, no. We're talking about downsizing the structure of one of our proudest corporations in America. Okay, that's an in incident. Now look at IBM Corporation posting the first loss in 50 years, a loss of a billion four. That's big numbers for anybody, even IBM. Now look at R.H. Macy, 134 years of history, and it's in Chapter 11. 
And it's not, it's not any one of these. They all have their stories. And yet, you look at the list, it grows and grows and grows and grows. Union Carbide's got problems. McDonnell Douglas has to go to Taiwan for financing. That's rather bizarre. You look at a list of the top 40 banks in the world, and there's only one U.S. bank on the list, Citicorp number 26, and it just posted a half a billion dollar loss. Doesn't take much horizon to recognize something's going on. And it isn't a correction. It's not a cyclical recession. It's something more fundamental. Tomorrow shall be as this day. I don't think so. And much more abundant. Gee, I wish it would, but I don't think so. We've got the savings and loan debacle. We've got the banks right behind it and the insurance companies right behind it. And we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars. That's big naughty even for a government. No, no, something more serious is going on. And so this, these passages apply. One of the things that we'll uh, uh, be talking more about is just what do we do in these times? First thing you do with your head up is to recognize that the ground rules have changed. The structures, the institutions, the, the, the playing field, as some people like to call it, of the past is history. There's a new set of players, a new set of rules, a different terrain. And your first step is to understand what the terrain looks like and then map your strategy to go after it. And the, the, your guidebook is right here in your lap. Come, they say, I will fetch wine and we will fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow shall be as this day and much more abundant. But this is put in the context of being their assertion that's in error. Chapter 57 continues to nail the false leaders and these misconceptions. The righteous perish. And no man layeth it to heart. The merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. Not bad, but let me tell you what it really says. The righteous are gathered in, the Hebrew says, out of the way of evil. Hey, that has a little different ring to it, doesn't it? The righteous are gathered in out of the way of evil. That's kind of an interesting phrase. If you're a weird one like me, you can say, gee, that smacks of the rapture. But that may be reading something into it. I'll leave you to do that yourself. Verse 2. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their uh, beds, each one uh, walking in his uprightness. But draw near here, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the harlot. Against whom do ye sport yourselves? Against whom make ye a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? I won't do any gestures. I think it speaks for itself. Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, slaying children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks? And, of course, the allusion here is to the worship of Moloch. They set up in the valley of Hinnom, child sacrifice, heated this bronze idol till it was intensely hot, and then putting their children in its arms. Bizarre, bizarre practices. Not quite as bizarre as the ones we practice today. What we try to do is legalize the destruction of the child before it's born. As if that's different. Huh? Among the smooth stones, and the word actually here is Bethels, or houses of God who means, but the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion, and they and they are thy lot. Even to them hast thou poured a drink offering and hast offered a meal offering. Should I receive comfort in these? Upon a lofty and high mountain hast thou set thy bed. Even there wentest thou up to offer sacrifice. Behind the doors also and the doorposts hast thou set up thy remembrance. For thou hast uncovered thyself to another than me, 
and art gone up, and thou hast enlarged thy bed and made thee a covenant with them. Thou lovest their bed where thou sawest it, and wentest to the king with ointment, and didst increase thy perfumes, and didst send thy messengers afar off, and didst debase thyself even unto Sheol. God focusing on their false practices, and obviously the idioms are very mixed here, obviously referring to false worship, but also all entangled with, with this uh, sexual overtone. It's interesting how all through the scripture, the uh, language that speaks of false worship treats false worship as adultery. There's a strange intermix of idioms between sexual infidelity and uh, spiritual infidelity. God uses the same terms to describe both, and we find them interestingly intermixed here. As often they are, literally, but certainly are, idiomatically. Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way, yet saidst thou not, there is no hope. Thou hast found the life of thine hand, therefore thou wast not grieved. And of whom hast thou been afraid or feared? That thou hast lied and hast not remembered me, nor laid it to thy heart? Have not I held my peace, even of old, and thou fearest me not? I will declare thy righteousness and thy works, for they shall not profit thee. Boy, one of the amazing things is how people are going to discover that which they trusted in ain't going to cut it. And boy, is it a tough time to find out here at the end of the road. Just because God was forbearing. Have not held my peace, even of old, and thou fearest me not. In other words, God was patient. He didn't strike them all down right away. I will declare thy righteousness and thy works, for they shall not profit thee. When thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee. But the wind shall carry them all away, and vanity shall take them. But he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land, and shall inherit my holy mountain, and shall say, Cast up, cast up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Isaiah is articulate. Verse 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I love that. He that inhabiteth eternity. Isaiah here is actually highlighting for us an error in our mathematics. You and I tend to think of timelines. We think of time as linear and absolute. We make a timeline in school from left to right, a birth to a death, a, a beginning to an end. Make a timeline. Because we do that, and that's understandable, but because we do that, we assume that eternity is simply a line that's infinitely long. It starts at infinity on the left and goes to infinity on the right, and we speak of eternity, that's the way we visualize it. Whether we realize it or not, we're making an error. Because we visualize God as simply someone who has lots of time. We don't realize that that's a contradiction of modern physics. In modern physics, we know that time is a physical property, just like mass and acceleration. Tell me the mass and the gravity and so forth, and you can construct a time domain. Change the mass, the gravity, the acceleration, and you change the time. Time can dilate. Time is not linear or absolute. We know that, and that's what Einstein's general theory is all about. Special theory has to do with energy and mass, but the general theory, primary implication for us philosophically, is it recognizes that time dilates. Time is a physical property. Talk about God as being freed from the constraints of mass in the first place, he doesn't have lots of time. He's outside the dimensionality of time altogether. We've talked a little bit. That's all by way of review. Okay. Here is what Isaiah says. The high and lofty one who inhabiteth eternity. 
You see, that makes sense to us if we understand that being eternal is to be outside time altogether. He's in a total, di- totally different dimensionality. And we know from the New Testament, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Boy, that's sophisticated math. That's a hyperspace discussion. We will see him because we are in his dimensionality. That's wild. Thus saith the high and the lofty one who inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I will dwell in the high and holy place with him also, who is of a contrite or crushed and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, neither will I always be angry. For the spirit shall fail before me and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I angry and smote him. I hid myself and was angry and went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of his lips Peace, peace, or more precisely, perfect peace, to him that is far off, to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea which, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. The last few couple of verses are very familiar to us because they echo similar phrases elsewhere. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Isaiah has used that as a refrain earlier. I think it was chapter 48. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Boy, is that a graphic use of phrase. Isaiah is the most articulate of the writers of the Old Testament. He has the largest vocabulary of anybody that writes. But he sure uses every rhetorical device that we know of. And there's, you know, some 50 or 100 different techniques in rhetoric, and almost all of them are found in Isaiah. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Boy, is that descriptive. The wicked are not only in trouble... They create trouble all the time. Their waters cast up mire and dirt. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Look around. Sounds like modern media. The wicked are like the troubled sea. This phrase is also used by Jude in verse 13 of Jude, but it also echoes many passages. The wicked are like the troubled sea. The idea that the Gentile world at large is depicted poetically in the Scripture as the sea. Daniel chapter 7, he sees these four beasts rise up out of the sea. Revelation 13, the beast rises up out of the sea. Another one rises out of the earth, and and you can dig into that when when you do your Revelation study. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.